The Gospel, a basic truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. The Gospel of Basic Truth. In this series, we're looking at where to find the gospel other than John 3.16. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the gospel as it's presented in the Gospel of Mark. There are two memory verses here, and I'll give those to you at the beginning. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The next verse is actually the key verse for the entire book of Mark. That is Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark is the shortest gospel. You can read it in four or five hours, a good afternoon. It begins abruptly. It ends abruptly. Uh, For centuries, people kind of ignored the gospel of Mark. Some even thought that Mark was simply a, a summary of Matthew. But today, the general scholarship is that Mark was the first gospel written and that both Matthew and Luke borrowed heavily. In fact, Matthew uses about 75% of the Gospel of Mark. Luke uses about 72%. Now, when Mark begins abruptly, we, we have no Christmas stories, and then it ends abruptly. So, as John Mark, who was the author, wrote this Gospel, he ended the Gospel at what we would say is chapter 16, verse 8. And yet there are 12 more verses, but those were added later. Our earliest manuscripts do not have those. Now, it doesn't mean they're not scripture. It's just that John Mark did not write the last 12 verses. So Mark, as it ends, is also very abrupt in the way it ends because there are no post-resurrection occurrences of Jesus. Uh, The women go into the empty tomb and the angels say, he's not here, he's risen. And of course, all people say, and he's risen indeed. And that's pretty much how it ends. In fact, Mark is full of action, so the plot driver, what drives the story or the narrative in Mark is a series of stories, one right after another. I often compare this to um, a Marvel comic book or a a Fast and Furious uh, TV movie. It is just fast, action, action, action. If all we had was Mark, not only would we not have the Christmas story, but Uh, The entire ministry that Jesus did in and around Jerusalem in the south is not present in this gospel. These series of action stories, it gets a little awkward after a while because he uses the same word like 40-some times. It's an adverb, and translated into English, it's the word immediately. So, there's a story, it ends abruptly, and then John says, and immediately Jesus went over here, and then there's another story. And that ends abruptly. And then immediately, just you notice the word as you read it. Mark uses an interesting technique as he tells stories. He uses a sandwich story. I want you to think of two pieces of bread and a slice of bologna. So you have one story inside the other. So for instance, there's a story where Jesus is in a town 
with his disciples. Everybody wants to come out and see him. So you got all the paparazzi. Everybody wants to get a selfie with him, get his autograph, you know, that kind of an action. And as they're in the streets walking along, a man breaks out of the crowd, throws himself at Jesus' feet, and we are told his name is Jairus. He is uh, the ruler of the synagogue, and he says to Jesus, my daughter is sick and dying. I believe you can heal her. And so Jesus says, well, lead on, Macduff. I'll follow you. The story is put on hold. Then another story breaks out. As they're walking to Jairus' house, this woman in the crowd, and we are told that she had been continuously bleeding for 12 years and that she had spent a great deal of money and suffered greatly at the hands of doctors. She says to herself, I believe if I just touch the hem of his robe, I will be healed. She does, and she is. Well, Jesus immediately calls a stop. He says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, Lord, everybody's touching you. What's the matter here? And he says, no, the power went out from me. So now he knows what's happened. And he waits. The woman being outed falls at Jesus' feet, tells what happened. Jesus says, get up, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Then now we go back to the piece of bread. So we had first piece of bread. We had the bologna. Now the second piece of bread is we're continuing the story of Jairus. On the way, we are told people come to meet Jairus and say, don't bother the teacher. Your daughter has died. Jesus says to Jairus, just believe. Believe what? Believe that I can heal her. And so they they go and Peter, James, and John go in with Jesus and the parents into into the room. Daughters lay down to the bed, dead. And Jesus says, get up, little girl. And she does. Now, it may look like two stories, but actually, uh, these, these are like Siamese twins. You can see the same point in both of them. And it's an interesting way to tell it. It helps you to memorize the story because they're so interrelated. We know who Jesus is in the book of Mark by what he does. We know what his mission is by what he does. This is very different than Matthew, and we did Matthew here a few episodes ago. In Matthew, we know who Jesus is by what he says. Now, at this point, I think it is helpful to compare and contrast Matthew and Mark. Matthew presents in the gospel Jesus as king. King Jesus, king of the Jews, king of all people. And in chapter 28, the last chapter, Matthew presents Jesus as king of all creation. Quite the opposite in Mark. In Mark, Jesus is presented as a suffering servant. Now, it's unfortunate in English we tend to be concerned about certain words, and we often see the word used as servant in Scripture. Well, the, really, the underlying word here is in Greek, doulos is singular, doulos is plural, and that word is better translated as slave. You know, in our culture today, 21st century, when we think of a servant, You know, maybe we think of the cast members on Downton Abbey or a character out of the mystery, uh, the butler out of the mystery series, Jeez and Worcester, okay? That is not the kind of servant that we're talking about in Scripture, okay? Really, we're talking about a slave. And so Jesus is really presented as a slave. In Matthew, Jesus comes to fulfill in the law and the prophets, okay, the Old Testament prophecy. In Mark, Jesus' purpose is to give his life as a ransom for many. We said that in Mark, the the action goes along because of these stories. 
quite different in Matthew. In Matthew, we have five great teaching dissertations. And by that, I want you to think of maybe four sermons all pushed together. That would be one teaching dissertation. So if, again, if you have a red-letter Bible where Jesus' words are in red, you can turn to that first great dissertation in Matthew, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. So that's chapters 5, 6, and 7. 98% of the words are in red. That is Jesus' teaching. So he has this great teaching dissertation, and that's how the plot moves. You can't sit down and read Matthew in an afternoon. Matthew is writing to a very learned audience, Jews living outside of Israel. We call that the Jewish diaspora. They would have known their Old Testament. They either could read it in Hebrew, or more likely they were reading the Septuagint, which was the Hebrew translated into Greek. Or, if they couldn't read it right, they would have memorized the law of Moses. So, very articulate, uh, very uh, literate people. They could fact-check anything that Matthew said. And so, as we read Matthew, there are a lot of assumptions that we don't even understand, and that's why a study Bible is helpful when reading something like Matthew, because Matthew's original readers would have understood a lot. Mark, on the other hand, he has Jesus not teaching what we would say formally, all right? So in Matthew, this formal teaching is what we would say didactic teaching. In classical education, we always thought of three ways to teach or three teaching modalities. I understand we've created more in the last couple decades, but classically, there was always three. The first was the formal, like listening to your pastor preach. He's got no idea whether you're listening or understand it, but he's just up there talking. Now, in Mark, we don't have any of that. There's no didactic teaching at all. It's what we call experiential teaching. There is a story. There's action. Now, maybe at the end of the story or action, Jesus will make some comments like, oh, grasshopper, what can we learn here? Okay, you get the idea. So Matthew is like the college professor. He has Jesus teaching that way up there talking all the time. In Mark, we have this experiential or kinetic teaching, and this is how people learn to play an instrument, how to cook, how to drive a car, how to play sports. You learn as you go. You you participate. And so that is how Mark has Jesus teaching. You know, and it makes sense because Matthew is having Jesus speak to a very learned audience. In Mark, Catch this now. I believe his audience was illiterate. And you're going to say, wait a minute. How can you write a book for somebody who can't read? Well, that's the point. So let me try to explain. A lot of men, when they get older and they retire, uh, sometimes they'll start you know, reading, doing things they weren't able to do while they were working. And oftentimes uh, men, especially if they were in the military or if their families go back a long way, um, will get involved in military history. I have family going back to 1620. We were in all the wars, so it's natural to want to read of military history. Probably the most popular is the Civil War, and sooner or later, everybody ends up with Gettysburg. Why? Gettysburg is really the turning point of the Civil War. Uh, after that, I mean, Lee was really lost. He just kept killing guys until finally he gave up at Appomattox. But the war was really over after Gettysburg. Kind of sounds like the Ukraine, doesn't it? Gettysburg is interesting because I know men who can sit down for and speak for three hours. 
Gettysburg lasted the better part of three days. They can talk for three hours. They don't need notes. They've got every single battle memorized. They've got the commanders, where the trees were, where the fence, you know, on and on and on. I was listening to a guy once. He was about 45 minutes into his Gettysburg presentation, his speech. <laughs> this was at a conference. Late at night, we're sitting at a table. And about 45 minutes, he stopped to get a drink. And so I, uh, I had to interrupt. And I said, so Harry, can you recite the Gettysburg Address? And he goes, huh? And I get the deer in the headlights look. Friends, I don't know where your education is, where you are, but the Gettysburg Address is the singularly most important political speech ever given in the history of America. It's only six and a half minutes long. President Lincoln dedicated the battlefield there at Gettysburg as a national cemetery. It is so important that for 200 years, certainly in the North, school children, second grade, third grade, you had to memorize this. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth in this continent a new nation dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war to see, okay, you got the idea. So my point is, Harry could talk for three hours because they were stories but he couldn't remember what he had learned 50 years earlier, a six-minute speech. That is the way we are made. We can very easily remember stories. You know, long dissertations, everybody yawns, falls asleep, and nobody can remember. So who exactly were Mark's audience? Traditionally, we say, well, he wrote to the Romans. It's a good guess, but it's, it's wrong. Mark wrote to the slaves that the Romans had. We estimate, historians say that during the time of the empire, there were a million people living in Rome. Only 60% of them were Romans, as in Roman citizens, all right? 10% were foreigners. They're on business, maybe getting a master's degree. And 30% were slaves, the douloi. Outside of the city of Rome, you had the vast Italian peninsula, Yes, there were towns and villages, but there were also great agricultural estates. The elites, the senatorial class, had these huge, huge agricultural estates. I think we could call them plantations. And of course, the percentage of slaves would have been higher. So Mark is written to be memorized because there are stories, all right? By the way, another large group of people in the empire were the Roman soldiers. There were foreigners. Now, yes, it's true, during the time of the Republic, the first 500 years, Roman citizens served. But by the time of the empire, they didn't want citizens to serve because they didn't want them armed. So yeah, the officers and the senior NCOs, the centurions, yeah, those guys were Romans. But the average dog face, okay, the average soldier was a foreigner. Why would a foreigner serve? Because, yeah, you could die, most people didn't. The discipline was tough, but you got fed. And after 20 years, if you're still alive, you got a pension and you were given Roman citizenship. That's true today here in this country. So you had these huge groups of people who really could not read and write. And that is what this gospel, that, those are the people. Now, would Mark like the middle class Roman citizens to read it? Sure. And many did. And we're going to see how, how, how this flows and why it would be easier to memorize. Let's take an example. What is the most important question in all of the Bible? 
I'll suggest to you the question is, what must I do to be saved? Now, we see that. That's in the book of Acts, chapter 16. That's the jailer in Philippi who has a God moment and throws himself at the feet of Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? Now, that question, although it's asked differently, Jesus answers that in each of the Gospels, and each time it's asked a little differently, okay? In Matthew, the question is, what is the secret to getting into the kingdom of heaven? In Mark, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the same question. So, Matthew's answer in this just very formal teaching way, we won't talk about it today, but now compare Mark. It does come up, but Jesus answers it essentially through two stories. So, I said that Mark tells sandwich stories. Well, in this instance, there's only two stories, but we only get one slice of bread. I call this the Danish sandwich story. Okay, went to pilot training with six Danish pilots in the one piece of bread and meat. That was their sandwich. And they would always laugh at us that we put the other piece of bread on top to hide what we were eating. So... Jesus and the disciples and their friends and wives and kids are having a cookout. They're doing shish kebab. I don't know. The little kids, now we're talking first grade, kindergarten, and younger. The first, the, these kids are just running around. You know, he, he, he. It's pretty clear to the little kids who the important guy here is. And so at some point, you could see the kids want to go up, you know, he, he, he. You know, smile at them, wave, run away. Uh, maybe some little boy gets really, really brave and runs up and touches Jesus on the knee and runs away. The disciples tell the, the children, go away, just leave the teacher alone. Now, Jesus has been waiting for this. This is the teaching moment. And he says, no, no, have him come here. And so he gathers them around and he touches them and he blesses them. And, and, and you know, they go, they go their way. And Jesus says to his disciples, heaven was made for these. And then he says something further. He goes, unless you're, you have faith like a little child, you're not going to get into heaven. You know, I've read that verse for years. It wasn't until I had grandchildren that suddenly I understood it, really, experientially. Little children have faith in you completely. If my grandchildren came over and I said, hey, guys, there's a pony in the backyard, boom, they'd be out in a second looking for the pony. Why? Because Papa said so. Little children will believe anything that their parents or grandparents say just because of who said it. So my grandchildren will just believe it by faith if, if grandmother or grandfather says it. And I go, oh, I have to have faith like that. So that's the first part. That's the first story. But it's not over. Because suddenly, we're now on a road. They're walking down a road, and somebody comes up to Jesus. It's a rich young man. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is, what do I got to do to get saved? What must I do to be saved? That's what he's asking. So Jesus now engages, it's kind of an interesting thing here. He says, well, and I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, have you obeyed the Ten Commandments? And the man says, I've obeyed them since my bar mitzvah. And Jesus says, you know, that's good, but it's not enough. In your case, because you're so wealthy, 
you must give up all that you own, give it away, and come and follow me. Well, young man gets very, very sad because he doesn't want to give it up. Yeah, he wants to follow Jesus, but he also wants to be able to rely on that wealth. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. Okay, we think the story's over when the young man goes away, but it's still not over. And Jesus says, almost in an offhand way to the disciples, yeah, it's pretty hard for a rich man to go to heaven. It's harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. I don't know what the eye of the needle is. I've heard all kinds of things. The point simply is, it's impossible. He's saying it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. Now, Peter speaks up, and it's not because he's impetuous. I've talked about Peter before. It's because he's the oldest. He is the leader. It's expected in that culture for him to talk. And he says, well, if a rich man can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus said, with a man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, no one can save themselves. Now, why would Peter and the rest of the disciples think that a rich man could go into heaven? Well, the thing that came to my mind was uh, there was a, a Broadway play many years ago made into a movie, and it's called Fiddler on the Roof. If you haven't seen it, you've got to go rent it. Now, the main character is a milkman. He's extremely poor. He's in Eastern Europe. He's talking to God, and he's like, God, why couldn't you make me rich? And that generates one of the title songs. If I were a rich man. Da, 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 da. Anyway, it goes on, and he goes, no, as he's singing this. No, if I was a rich man, I wouldn't have to work hard. All day long, I could sit in the synagogue. I could listen to the learned men. I could study God's word. I could use my money for benevolent things. And that's what Peter and the disciples are thinking, that a rich man can get into heaven because they got time to study God's word and to do benevolent things. And Jesus said, it's still not enough. At that moment, Peter gets it. And he's got kind of a strange answer, but he gets it. He goes, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. I even sold my boat. Now, Jesus has a long response, but it all summarizes into, yes, Peter, that's the right answer. Now, I want you to think about this. Let's take the moment that the barbecue, okay? Um, we're going to fast forward 30 years. Peter's in prison in Rome. He's going to get murdered. He's chained to a guard, and he's talking to the guard, and the guard kind of likes him. And uh, just to be nice, because he's an old man and seems to be somebody important, uh, the guard calls him uh, Uncle Pete. Oh, we'll, we'll say, Tio, Tio Pete, hey, Tio Pete, explain this salvation thing again to me. And what does it mean to have faith? I can see Peter. His mind goes back 30 years. There he is. He's at the barbecue. And he sees the little children coming forward. That is the faith that this guy needs. And that, that is the story he's got to tell him. Because a guy probably has kids and maybe he can understand. Let's take on the road with a rich man. And let's go forward 70 years. The Apostle John is 90-some years old. He is the last cowboy standing. Everybody else that knew Jesus before the crucifixion are dead. He is the last one on earth to know Jesus, and he's still alive. So he's in Ephesus. Ephesus is a very important city, second most important city in the Roman Empire. And so some rich guy, you know, he comes out, and, 
and he's, he hears uh, John a few times, and, um, you know, he likes these Christians. They, they seem to be pretty nice people. So he says, yeah, I'm thinking of joining the church, but I really want to see this, this John, the Apostle John. And so, okay, okay, he's a rich man. So they usher this guy in, and there's, there's John. He's 90-some he's years old. And, uh, yeah, I really want to get saved. I really like your teaching, and, and I have a gift for the church. All of a sudden, John's not there. He's not in that room. He's back 70 years earlier when he was a young man. He's standing on the road, and he's listening, and he's watching as Jesus is saying, rich man can't get into heaven. You can't rely on your wealth. You have to come like a little child. I just use that because I think it's, these stories are so powerful. Let's now look at two memory verses. The first one is Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, what pastors do at this point, or teachers, they'll say, well, we got to unpack this. I'm kind of tired of that term, so I'm going to say I'm going to unfold it, okay? There is a lot here. Jesus is a man. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up, he, he went to high school in Nazareth, okay? He's a real man. But he's also the Christ. Now, Christ is an English pronunciation of the underlying Roman word, which was Christos, which was to represent an underlying Hebrew word, which is, I can never pronounce, Mashiach, which we pronounce in English as Messiah. So this real man, Jesus, is also the Messiah, the one who fulfills all of the prophecies in the Old Testament and all the Old Testament law, including the prophecies in Isaiah, which talks about how this Messiah will suffer and die for the sins of many. Okay? And one more thing. Jesus, the Messiah, is also deity. He's also the Son of God. So there's a lot in that one verse. Okay, that's a good verse, though, that you can use uh, to witness from. Now let's take the first chapter of Mark and see how Mark weaves these stories together. So he does the throwdown. I mean, he, does, he cuts to the chase, unlike all the others. He just says, here it is. And this is the gospel, verse 1. Now, what does it take to prove something in the Bible? The rhetorical question. It takes two or three witnesses in a court of law. And that is exactly what Mark does here. He gives us three witnesses to prove the first sentence. Who is the first witness? It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. He is speaking for the prophets, for everything in the Old Testament. On behalf of the prophets and the law and Moses, he is saying, yes, this is the Messiah. First witness. Second witness, and I don't know how you get any better than this. Okay, Jesus is baptized, comes out of the water, Holy Spirit comes down. A voice from heaven. Guess who? God the Father, and he says, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Wow. Second witness is the God of creation who says, Oh yeah, this is God the Son. Now, what is the third witness? It's what Jesus does. It is the miracles. So the rest of chapter 1, what we have are Jesus having command and authority over demons, evil spirits. And they even know who he is. Now, 
You don't accept the testimony of demons and spirits. The point is they knew who he was. But it's the fact that he had power over them, could cast them out, could make them be silent, shows that he is God. The second half of the signs and wonders that he does in chapter 1 shows his authority and power over sickness and disease, including, if you can get this, over the most deadly, feared, always fatal disease of that time, which was leprosy. And he could heal that too. Now, let's go back to slaves. Let's say we got two slaves. Young guy had been a soldier. His army lost. He was sold into slavery, sold to one of these plantations. And there's an older slave. He's the foreman. And the older slave's nice to him. And he finally says, you know, why are you nice to me? And the older slave says, well, I'm a follower of the way. And the guy goes, well, what's that? I'm a follower of Jesus Christos. In other words, a follower of Jesus. And so the young man says, well, who's that? What does that mean? Well, what's the older guy going to do? Is he going to say, hey, drive around my room tonight after taps, and we'll have an expository Bible study in the book of John? Well, no, that's not going to happen. John probably hasn't been written yet, and neither one of these two guys can read. So what are they going to do if they even had a Bible? But if the older man had just memorized chapter 1, and I've just told you the story, okay? You can, the older slave can, can, can give you Give the younger guy the gospel message and the proof right there. And all he has to do is remember the first chapter, which I dare say most of you can after listening to this podcast. Interesting, in chapter 2, it's what Jesus does, and there are two episodes there, two stories, where Jesus is proclaiming himself to be God by what he does very powerful way to be able to reach illiterate people through stories. And I think chapter one is just a, just a box with a bow on it that any of us can use as well to witness. Now, let's go to the last verse there. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is a lot here. The Son of Man is just not some title that Mark made up or that Jesus made up. This is what we call a messianic title, and it's used in the Old Testament. And the first time we see it is in the book of Daniel. About 600 years earlier, Daniel was during the captivity, Nebuchadnezzar, all that kind of stuff. Daniel is over a period of about 60 years, is given four great visions. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, this is actually the first vision. And this is a vision about what is going to happen to the empires of men. God tells Daniel, okay, this is going to happen. First, we got the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks, and then we're going to have the Romans, and then we're going to have this uh, empire that comes out of the, the Roman Empire, which is what we're living in today. And then it's the end. And the Ancient of Days will come to judge. And the Ancient of Days, referring to God the Father. He is seated. He's going to judge. And at some point from the clouds, and it's described as one like a son of man comes and stands before the Ancient of Days. 
in the Ancient of Days gives this Son of Man all dominion, all glory, a kingdom that will never end, and all peoples and all nations, all languages will serve him, his dominion will never end, they will worship him. This is the Messiah. This is what Jesus is calling himself. He's, he's saying, yes, this is I, and that's why he's using that title. And he says, so, the guy that's going to, when he comes back the second time, all right, this is, this is why, he's going to be ruling that. But this first time, this son of man didn't come for you to serve him as king, even though he is, but he came to serve you. How? To give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, to die, to pay the ransom, to free us. This uh, evokes going back to Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah, folks, that is a difficult book to read. Every time you think, oh, I'm going to sit down and read it, it's, it's very difficult. You, you, you really kind of need to study Bible on that one. Isaiah has been given incredible uh, visions and, and prophecies about the Messiah. And one of those incredible prophecies comes from Isaiah 52 and 53. So if you're checking, it's 52 verse 13 through verse 53, excuse me, chapter 53, verse 12. A lot of same numbers there. We often call this the suffering servant section because this Messiah figure is presented. And then basically we are told he's going to be beat up so badly that you can't even recognize him. Well, that's certainly what happened to Jesus. He didn't do anything wrong, but he would be pierced. Okay, this is back in, you know, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus. This is what Isaiah has been told by God. And this suffering servant will be pierced for the transgressions of his brothers and sisters. He will be punished because of them. He will give his life to pay the punishment that his, his comrades deserve. And yet somehow he lives and he's given a kingdom. And that's what Jesus is saying in Mark 45. And notice how well this is going to appeal to Mark's readership. They are slaves. The older slave can tell the younger slave, Jesus is a man like us, but he was also God. And, and he became a slave like us to die for us. You see how much he loves us? He, he's going to ransom us. He can understand us because he, he's one of us. I'll tell you what, it's too bad people didn't look at Mark for centuries. There is a lot here. There is so much in Mark that, yeah, you can read it in the afternoon, but Maybe you should take your time and, and see those stories that you can leave and walk out and the story stays with you and you can relate that to maybe witnessing or, or something. I just want to go to the end of Mark. Chapter 16, we get to, to verse 8. Women are there. Jesus is not there. The tomb is empty. The angels again say, you know, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And then he says, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. 
they are to, and there they will see him, just as he told you. Kind of interesting, again, the way this gospel ends. Remember, it's a bunch of stories, action stories. And now at the end, we we have an open-ended action story. The message to the disciples is, the action continues. Come join me. Come join me. We're going to do this together. Okay? And in the same way, the original readers and you and I and everybody comes after us. This is like an open invitation. We are to join with the disciples and go and follow Jesus. I have to say, the more I studied Mark, the more passionate I became about how different and yet how the message is the same. Next time, we're going to look at Luke. And Luke actually uses the third form of teaching, and that's different than the other two. But isn't it, again, fascinating that there's three modalities of teaching that seem to work on people for thousands of years, and we have three Gospels with the same material, and each focuses on one of those different teaching modalities. I'll have a lot more to say next time as we look at Luke and going to end that whole discussion of, of how the teaching is done. All right, please join with me as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Every time I open it up and study, I see something new, and I say, wow. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for those images you give me now. Not only the stories in Mark, but how I can relate those in my own life and how I can be a better witness. Lord, I pray that everyone here who's listening that you will impress upon their hearts these stories and give them confidence that they can, they can share the gospel. Lord, I thank you, and in Jesus' name, amen.